We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast is sponsored by Liquid Death. Are you thirsty? Parched? Do you like dark and eerie sinister names for your beverages? Then you'll love Liquid Death. Go to liquiddeath.com, use the promo code BIGBLUE for a refreshing beverage ahead of Halloween season. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always, my co-host Nick Pilato. Coming to you on a Thursday. For those of you watching on the YouTube page, thank you for helping us out there. For those of you listening to the podcast, you'll probably hear this over the weekend. That's okay, too. Make sure you download, subscribe, rate, review, all those things. And we're going to dive into some mailbag questions today because that's always fun. We love it. And so, Let's kick this bad boy off right now. We you, we don't need any uh, preamble, Nick. Let's dive right into the question. So I'll start with Chris, no longer in St. Pete, who asks, what's your level of concern of the running ability of Lamar? And do you buy into the hype of Wink Martindale knowing Lamar's weaknesses from practicing against him? I mean, I think there's some truth to that. But at the same time, Lamar Jackson is, is an elite superstar at the quarterback position. So just because... Wink Martindale knows his weaknesses doesn't mean that Lamar is not going to get the best of him every now and again. In terms of his running ability, I am concerned. I really am. I think the Giants' edges need to be incredibly disciplined. It's something that I feel like they've been basically all season. But even so, Lamar Jackson can burn you when you know that the Baltimore Ravens love to run quarterback power. They'll hit the A gap with it off the zone read. So those linebackers, man, there's going to be a lot of stress on Jalen Smith. There's going to be a ton of stress on Tay Crowder out there. And if the Giants do decide to come out in more safety looks, more lighter personnel, they have 330-pound offensive lineman. They have a 305-pound fullback. So it's going to be difficult for the New York Giants to contain the legs of Lamar Jackson. I'm a little worried about it. doesn't mean they can't, but it's definitely not an easy task. It's almost like they have an extra offensive lineman out there by using that like 300-pound fullback. It really does feel that way sometimes. Uh, I think you posted something earlier today, Nick, where it was like leading leading for Lamar. It's just like we have Jalen Smith. We have Tate Crowder. Those are the guys who are really going to have to step up and have really big games uh, for the Giants in this game because, like you said, they will be tested. I will say this about the whole Wink-Martindale narrative. On the flip side, and I'm sure this, and in my mind, it almost counts for the same, the Ravens might have an edge over the Giants because they've seen this Wink Barndale defense. They know the tendencies. They know how to beat it in the pass game. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. So I don't really feel like either team has an advantage here. 
Okay, and also in, Dan, yeah, and also Dan too. Lamar Jackson, I think, has been the most efficient quarterback against the Blitz against so far. Blitz, yeah, it's very bad news for the Giants. Or he was going into like last week. I'm sure it didn't go down from one game. So yeah, that is a big. That you're right. That's a really big red flag for the Giants. But look, I will say this: we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about the matchup more on the preview pod. But if there's ever a week for the Giants to get this passing game going and rip it for like 250, this is it. Because you can beat these. First of all, Daniel Jones, and we'll see with what they do, Baltimore, because I'm curious to get Ken's opinion on this because they kind of altered their game plan against Joe Burrow. I don't know if they will do that against the Giants with Daniel Jones. But if they don't and they stick with a lot of man principles, I think that's a, that gives Jones the opportunity to have one of his biggest games passing. And we'll see what happens. But Stephen Dan, what, too, about you know, that, just to speak on that matchup, we'll talk about it with Ken. Yes. But watch the Patriots game. Dude, they could not stop the horizontal crossing patterns from the Patriots. And what does Brian Dayball and Mike Kafka run so much of? Horizontal yeah. crossing patterns. So that is one check in the Giants' direction. And that's why I think this chess match is going to be really fun to witness. And I really like the way Daniel Jones throws the crossers. I think he does a good job of driving the football. I think he does a good job of maintaining ball placement with, the, with driving the football. So that's just one thing I wanted to give Jones credit for. I don't know how many other throws he has that I think are – lights out best in like not best in the league, but lights out like upper echelon type throws. Um, you know, he hasn't been had the opportunity to throw over the top. He's shown good touch in the past there. But as far as driving the ball over the middle of the field, I think he does a good job of that. So that could help in this game. Steven Mice asks, which offensive lineman returning from injury give the offensive line the biggest could give the offensive line the biggest boost moving forward? That's a great question. I think it is, and I'm not really 100% certain where Nick Gates is at right now and what his game would be, even if he could return to 100%. So I think I'm going to go with Shane Lemieux at the left guard spot. And maybe that's a little bit of recency bias because Ben Bredesen was really poor last week in, in week five. So I think Shane Lemieux, maybe he can add something, but this is also someone we haven't seen on the football field in so damn long. So that has to be factored in as well. I'm not overly optimistic about either of those guys coming back to the lineup and being a significant upgrade. I'll go Gates on this one, Nick, just because I think there's more of a sample size of Gates actually playing good football than there is Shane Lemieux. Shane Lemieux was a pretty good run blocker as a rookie and the worst pass protecting left guard in the NFL. So like we just have to like note that. And like there was some evidence that he looked a little better last year before the injury. And then this year at times before the injury, not we never tested in game, but you know, practices or whatnot. And so he can take a step forward for sure. But at least with Gates, I've seen him play pretty well overall, pretty consistent on both as a run and pass blocker, specifically as a pass blocker where I really liked him. Um, and so I'll go with Gates. Just think there's more upside there, even though, you know, it, it is, it remains, like you said, it's important to note that we don't know if he'll ever be the same. Dad, you said Steven, I'm going to go with Stefan here. It is Stefan. My bad, Stefan. Yeah. And he also asked, do you think the Giants defensive who line? Pronounces whole- Steve, who pronounces S-T-E-F-A-N <laughs> Steven? That's me, I guess. Dan Schneier does it. There's a, there's actually a question in yeah, this doc uh, about like your, your Schneierisms. Do you I think like the Giants it. defensive line at full strength with Ojolari, Kayvon Thibodeau, Big Cat, and Sexy Dexy could generate a four-man pass rush to allow Martindale to drop more players in coverage in certain situations? Absolutely. I, I do, Dan. I also think, though, that Wink Martindale wants to be deceptive with where his pass rush is coming from. So even though he can generate a pass rush with four, he's still going to line seven guys on the line of scrimmage. He might bring four, but which four of the seven are coming? Yeah, Nick nailed this one. I mean, look, the build overall, 
this is what the Bills are doing. Why they're the best defense in the NFL right now. They're rushing four, dropping seven. That's probably the ideal way to play football if you have that good of a pass rush. And I think the Giants can honestly get to that with a healthy Ojolari, Kayvon Thibodeau, Big Cat, and Sexy Dexy playing the way that he's playing right now. But like Nick said, I don't think they want to do that. I think this is just not who Wink Martindale is. He's not a guy who rushes four and drops seven for most of the game. That's not how he plays foot. That's not how he schemes football up. And I think part of this also... You know, I don't think they I don't think he wants to do that because I don't think the players would love that either. I think the players love playing within this style of system and you take that away from them. Yeah, you can have these guys dominate up front in this big four, but I don't necessarily think that's what works for the rest of the defense. And I feel like from Wink's perspective, he feels like he gets an edge when he does things like Nick and I broke down last week generate these simulated pressures where there's offensive linemen blocking no one, or there's one offensive or three offensive linemen and just one giants pass rusher in the vicinity. So I still think he wants to get that edge on a weekly basis, wasting players from the offensive side of the ball, having it be kind of like a 10 on 11 for the giants favor. So I don't think it'll change even if he gets that dominant front. And we just played the green Bay Packers. When did you see defensive backs or linebackers pressuring Daniel Jones? Like they didn't blitz them. Now, at the same time, obviously the way the Giants offense is constructed right now negates that a little bit. But Joe Barry is so much more predictable than a ple- than a coach like Wink Martindale. And I think that's one reason why we see Darnay Holmes always pressuring the quarterback. We see uh, Xavier McKinney. We see all these safeties generating pressure. And you see what kind of plays that it spawns, man, like batting yeah. passes down to the line of scrimmage, getting pressure, getting sacks and stuff like that. So uh, I definitely think Wink is going to wink. Yeah, imagine if we just had this dominant defensive line and on that fourth down game-winning stop, we just rushed four. We probably lose that. They probably tie the game right there, honestly. Rodgers is such a good thrower. He probably rips that back shoulder and they tie the game. So, you know, I don't know if he wants to go away from the scheme, the coaching that he's done that's that's kind of led us here. Okay, Chris Clark says, given how uh, Daniel Jones, Dexter Lawrence, Xavier McKinney um, wasn't part of that that uh, draft class. I don't know if he's talking about X. Oh, Shane Exeminens. Yeah. And Julian Love are performing. Is it time to begrudgingly admit Dave Gettleman had a good 2019 draft? Um, If you also include Thomas and McKinney, I don't know how you can include that for the 2019 draft. Crowder in round seven. Oh, was it overall drafts better? So let's start with two questions, I think. So let's start with the 2019 and then move on to the overall drafts. Yeah, and then Chris Clark also said the free agency was still horrific. I don't think we should even begrudgingly say that because those drafts are starting to hit. It's just the coaching never maximized the draft picks that Dave Gettleman ended up making. The issues with Dave Gettleman were never he's terrible at drafting. I think it was just value assessment and then what he ended up doing in free agency to attempt to plug the holes on the roster. Yeah. Um, So that's for overall for the 2019, just overall. I was speaking a little bit more about overall. Now, that doesn't mean that he's perfect, but yeah, yeah, I think he does deserve some credit for drafting guys like Julian Love, who we liked that draft pick at the time. Tay Crowder, I mean, he's not an ideal linebacker, but that's Mr. Irrelevant, and he's started several yeah. games here for the New York Giants. So there is some credit there. For Daniel Jones, that's a little bit different in my opinion. Like I didn't value Daniel Jones as a first-round quarterback. I still don't value Daniel Jones as a first round quarterback, despite the fact that he he's playing what, what, how he's playing right now. So that one, I, I wouldn't necessarily group into this as much as I like the kid. Dexter Lawrence, though, he's starting to live up to the potential that Dave Gettleman saw in him. And as for McKinney, he fell right into Dave Gettleman's lap. I'm glad he made that pick. And Andrew Thomas is playing up to the potential that he showed at Georgia. So I think he deserves credit for that. You can you can give someone credit for doing things right while also acknowledging that they should not be the general manager of the team anymore because they did so many things wrong. Yeah, that's a fair take. I would say as far as my opinion goes on the 2019 draft, there still are two picks that we start with Daniel Jones at six overall. 
That one we're not willing to say is a good pick yet. Nick just kind of went over it. I'm not willing to say that yet either. If you strings together consistency for the next however many games, you can start to maybe consider that. But I think when you're going top six, you probably have to, you know, be a little bit more consistent than he's been over these first four years and not a little bit, a lot more consistent, to be fair. And now if you want to throw out the first three years and just talk about this year, that's fine. I understand that. Um, as far as that draft goes, though, we can't just ignore the fact that he used a first round pick on DeAndre Baker and traded two picks to also get there. So this is the thing with Dave Gettleman for me. He's made some hits, some really good hits. McKinney is a really good hit. Thomas is a really good hit. Dexter Lawrence is turning into a really good hit. Love, you should hit on some day three picks, right? That's his only real day three pick he hit on, unless you consider Crowder part of it. Lemieux, um, but he's just been injured. Lemieux, definitely not part of it yet. And he might be, but I again. So he has one hit on day three in all his drafts. That's not good. He burned a first-round pick on Baker, who knows what's going to happen with Tony. That's not good. And so, yeah, I mean, look, he's going to hit on some picks, but you can't. You have to understand, he's not. you can't grade these GMs on a one-to-one scale. When you have a top-10 pick every year, you're expected to hit on some of these picks. When you have a top-four pick, a top-six pick, you're expect a top-two pick, you're expected to hit on some of these picks. So I want to give him credit because it's not easy to, to, to nail um, Xavier McKinney at all. It's not easy to nail, even though we felt like it kind of fell into his lap, but still, you have to make the pick. It's not easy to nail Dexter Lawrence, you know, with him being as good as he's been this year. And as far as that draft goes, it is good to get out of that. Lawrence, um, Shane Ximenez is a nice role player, and Love is a nice role player too. But remember, he had three first-round picks in that draft, right? So it's and one of them was off the team in like a year and a half. And one of them was off the team in a year and a half. So I don't know, man. He's going to hit on some picks. We, you hope a GM doesn't miss every pick, right? And especially when they're top four, top six, top ten. So I'll give him credit for hitting some picks, sure. And Thomas does definitely a great evaluation because there were four tackles in that class and two clearly better than their other two. So at least he had all a choice of all four, but he did at least get one of the the two that obviously you want. So that he and the one for. and one that plays left tackle too. Worse is amazing. I think Worse right. could play left tackle if he wanted to, but so that's too. a whole nother story because they have a left tackle already. But that's a whole other thing. All right, Marmaking Marmarking asks Daniel Jeremiah said the Giants scheme. I think this wasn't Jeremiah, but maybe he said it too. Gives Andrew Thomas a lot of help. He isn't really having many pass sets because it's an RPO system. Oh, maybe he did say it because I don't think Thorne talked about the RPO stuff. So this might have been a Jeremiah take. Um, I didn't hear it, but we'll go by what Marmarking is saying. He says also because the pass on the pass on the right, but the run the left. Um, I guess he's saying and he's getting credit as if it was a pass set. Do you get that one, Nick? He's saying the pass on the right, but run on the left. And he's getting credit as if it's a pass set. You get that? I mean, if you go to PFF, PFF has a whole section on true pass sets, and the Giants had five true pass sets, which don't factor in these play-action rollouts and the play-action pass. So PFF delineates between those two. And have you looked at where the Giants are at on the true pass sets? Because I have not. We could do it another The Giants time. had like 12 in the last two weeks. But this is something we talk about every single podcast. Every single podcast we talk about how this is how sustainable this is because everything is play action rollout and RPO and they're not really taking true pass sets. And if the Giants go down, you know, 17 points, can they come back? Yeah, they can, apparently. Yeah, they did the already. <laughs> so, but like at the same time, like in a different type of game script, could they come back? And if the outside run and the rollouts are eliminated and they're not hitting these big plays and these horizontal crosses. And that would be the question mark. But this question by Marmarking is more associated with Andrew Thomas. 
the reason the Giants are doing this is not because of Andrew Thomas. They're doing it because the rest of the offensive line has been bad. Andrew Thomas has been really good anytime he's been asked to true pass that, which we saw a lot in the first three weeks of the season until Dallas right. Cowboys absolutely exploited the rest of the offensive line. And the Giants were like, well, we moved the football much better utilizing Daniel Jones's best asset, which is his legs. And by a byproduct, that means Andrew Thomas isn't going to take as many true pass sets. But it's not because of Andrew Thomas. They're not taking those true pass sets it's because of the rest of the offense. That's fair. I think Nick's basically saying to answer your question, he said, do you guys see that on tape? Yes, we do see it on tape, but we don't think it should be a knock on Thomas. Is that correct, Nick? Yeah. I mean, at the same time, though, it's not like we're seeing as much pass sets from right. Andrew Thomas because of that state. But every time he's been asked to do it, he's far better than what we've right. seen even last year from Andrew Thomas. The right. development of Andrew Thomas has just ascended so much. And every time we see him out there and as a run blocker, I feel like he's much better this year too. He's improved every aspect of his game. So I'm not going to sit here and just say like, oh yeah, Andrew Thomas sucks because the Giants offense has to play a certain way to maximize the potential of other players that are around Andrew Thomas. Yeah, I think that's all pretty fair. I, I agree with Nick on this. Okay, Carlos Fig asks, please explain why in every game Daniel Jones has looked to throw it deep only to pump it and run. He seems to be waiting for something, but shouldn't he uh, Shouldn't he know with anticipation? I guess maybe it should, should say, shouldn't he throw with anticipation if it will be open or not and then move on to his next read instead of waiting so long? And then his second read uh, seems to be he's looking at the rush. I think a lot of the times those are play action passes. He's seeing if the defender is going to be in phase on whoever he's looking at target wise. And he's judging on if he should throw the football. But a lot of the times the separation isn't there, even with, say, Darius Slayton or Marcus Johnson. He's seeing if the safety, if it's a middle of the field close type of defense, the safety is going to get over in time. And also it's buying him some time to to roll out, extend the play, see if that intermediate crosser can pass through windows like that Marcus Johnson play that we broke down from last week. And it also allows those defenders to gain depth off the play action, which allowed Daniel Jones to pick up extra yardage with his feet. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great take by Nick. I would say this. He's also improved a lot in this regard. I think there were more examples this early in the season on film. For example, one that comes to mind was the time when he kind of stared down, locked into David Sills running a vertical route, missed Tony on the deep over. I believe that was the Panthers game, Nick. Is that right? Week two? Uh, yes the deep over. Yeah. And there was an example of that versus the Titans as well. A couple of examples of that versus the Titans. Um, so I think part of it is, look, when you're staring down David Sills trying to run a vertical route, the guy who has literally the least yards per route, the, the third least, the third fewest yards per route run from boundary receiver this year, it's, it's different than when you're staring down, even like a Marcus Johnson, who I hope to be honest, Nick is going to get all of those sills, not all, cause they're never going to fully phase sills out. But most of those still snaps moving forward. This is a better offense when you have Johnson, in my mind at least. It's a better offense when you have Johnson and Slayton on the field than you have Sills on the field. I just got to be honest about the situation. Speed to me is almost everything from a schematic standpoint. And the other thing to answer this guy's, to answer Carlos's question is, I am kind of okay with him like moving off that first read and deciding to run often and early. And I know this is a coaching point. And I'll tell you why I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it because... What did we think about in the past when this didn't? What are you laughing at? I'm just saying I, I, I'm i okay with it because it's working. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with it because it's working, but uh, why is it working? Because what did we? What happened in the past when this didn't happen? When this didn't happen, he would stare, he would lock, he would, he would hang in that pocket, and it would lead to some really bad situations for the Giants. He would take sacks that he shouldn't have taken. He would take hits that could lead to forced fumbles and did often lead to forced fumbles. Now he's deciding to run with it. And guess what? If you don't run with it, something might not get open. Like you, everything might be covered. And then you have no other option at that point because you didn't make the early decision to run when you had the lane. 
And what have we learned about football through these years? Or what have we been told that I agree with? It's that some of the easiest yards you can get in the game is when a quarterback runs and a non-designed quarterback run, just taking the yards when he can. And it is free yards a lot of the time, and that's why Jones has been taking it, and that's why they're coaching him to take it. And so I'm I'm pretty much okay with that. And, and like I said earlier, I really think he's improving in this regard. We'll see what happens uh, if they can actually get some speed on the field in Marcus Johnson and Darius Slayton. So we'll, we'll know more with those guys on the field, I think. And, and obviously, Tony and, and Robinson get on the field. Because, look, Robinson isn't the greatest athlete of all time. He's five foot eight, But he did run basically like a 4-4 flat, right, Nick? It was like a 4-4 what? 4-4-7 or something like that? It was somewhere in the four fours. He's, he's four quick. Fours, and yeah. he's quick, and he's a little bit more speed than people think. I think Tony's similar in that regard. The overall, they just have a lot more juice running these routes than like yes. a Sills type. Um, think about the, the, the framework of that play-action rollout pass, though, because you can just get Daniel Jones rolling to the field. So he has so much field to cover you have because it's based off of play-action. All those linebackers kind of scrambling to gain depth, and then you have these backside right. receivers running deep horizontal crossing routes. If that defense traditionally drops to a certain spot in zone coverage, what they're supposed to do is getting messed up by the fact that they're paying attention to the play action to stop Saquon Barkley. Then they have to drop to their spot, but their spot is also getting changed because Daniel Jones is constantly moving laterally. And then you have these backside crossing routes just going through passing windows if this is zone coverage. If it's man coverage, you know, and the Giants don't have the most dangerous wide receivers, but still keeping up with a professional wide receiver running horizontally is isn't the easiest task for a lot of these cornerbacks who are also paying attention to the run especially if it was to the strong side the play action side a lot of those cornerbacks might be paying attention to the run first and then they're caught scrambling so it puts the defense really in a bind these types of play calls and daniel jones to his credit is executing it very well yeah you nailed it nick okay let's move on to the next question from todd williams he says with the acquisition of landon collins who takes the playing time hit i think most would agree Jalen Smith is in a positive. So would it be McFadden, Crowder, or Jefferson? First, Todd, I want to say Landon Collins has to be on the active roster. Yeah. First, I think we got to wait and maybe we're putting the cart before the horse. But let's assume that's going to happen maybe as early as this week. I would say McFadden and Jefferson a little bit. But I think they like having Jefferson up there. And I'm also curious if they're going to address both Jefferson and Landon Collins. I'm not 100% sure. But everything I've seen from Tony Jefferson so far suggests that he should be out there on the football field for like the 10 snaps that he ends up getting because he's been a pretty solid player who knows this system very well. But if Landon Collins were to be dressed, I think it would come at the expense of some snaps for McFadden and Jefferson. It's also based on the opponent that they're going up against and what the game plan will be. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Jordan Ronan and some of the beat reporters uh, were reporting yesterday that Collins was taking linebacker drills and taking drills of the linebackers. Also came in before like Calitro and that group, which I don't know if I want to read too much into that. But I think ultimately he could play some sort of hybrid role. I, I, if I had to guess, the snaps are going to come from Jefferson. That's just the, the the best guess for me. He's going to play Jefferson's role, but I don't know if he signed here to just have that role. That's the thing that I keep coming back to Nick. Like would he have signed with the giants? If, if they told him like, you're literally just going to be in the role If they said like, here's what Jefferson has done so far. This is all you get a few snaps a game, right? I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case. So I think he could also play some of those linebacker snaps in which case he would take away from a McFadden type or potentially even a Jalen Smith. I would personally rather have Jalen Smith on the field than, than take Crowder. That's my opinion on the, on the situation. I think Jalen Smith could easily operate in the Crowder role. There's nothing really Crowder offers that I don't think Jalen Smith can offer besides maybe just raw speed and athleticism, which I don't even think he utilizes perfectly. And I think Jalen Smith is much better from a game speed standpoint, even if he's not as fast of an athlete anymore post-injury. So I would hope it comes from Crowder if they're going to take away from the one of those two personally. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, we got to wait to see when this guy even gets on the field. But Brandon Marcus asks, I don't know anything about offensive line play. Brandon, I'm sure you know some things about it. Give yourself some credit. But after hearing... If you listen Evan to this podcast, you hopefully know some things about it. Yeah. <laughs> but after hearing Evan Neal called top-heavy in preseason, it's really easy to see. It looks like he's often tilted forward, off-balance, and lunging from the upper body. Do you guys see that? Yeah, look, we, we, we've talked about this at length on our All-22 breakdowns. We talked about this when we evaluated his tape out of Alabama. This is one of his issues. It was one of his issues coming into the NFL. It's going to be an issue week five of his rookie season. That's not going to just get fixed magically with that. No offensive line coach is going to fix that in five games, especially not going against NFL level talent versus you know, Alabama. They play great players. They don't play NFL level pass rushers every week. Uh, no one does. So, yeah, it's an issue for him. He'll work on it. He'll get better with it, I think. I don't know that, you know. It's interesting to think about what his ceiling can be. I don't know that it ultimately can be an Andrew Thomas level, but I'll be honest, Nick, I didn't think Andrew Thomas had this ceiling during his during this time of his rookie year, right? If you asked, you might have. I, if you asked me, I wouldn't have said Andrew Thomas has this kind of ceiling at all at that point of his rookie year. So things change with the development of these players, um, and so we'll have to just let it ride out. But you're seeing it because it's happening. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You may start noticing there are strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section of your local stores. Well, it's not beer. It's actually mountain spring water from the Alps. And it's called Liquid Death. Why is this new water called Liquid Death? Because it will brutally murder your thirst. And the recyclable Tallboy cans are helping to bring death to plastic bottles. I've tried Liquid Death, and I am still here. I'm not plastic, nor am I thirsty anymore, because my former parched state was quenched by the tart acidic taste of one of their flavors, Severed Lime. The lime became severed because it messed with another Liquid Death flavor, Mango Chainsaw, which combines real agave nectar with Leatherface to slice the uncomfortable drought festering in your oral cavity. Into berries and fruit, go six feet deep with a heartbeat with their sparkling flavor, Bury It Alive. If you love still or sparkling water, go get Liquid Death at your local Woodman's, 7-Eleven, Roundy's, or Hy-Vee, 
or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com. Just use the promo code BIGBLUE. Again, go get Liquid Death at your local Whole Foods Market, Target, and Stop and Shop stores, or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com. And then use the promo code BIGBLUE. That's liquiddeath.com slash BIGBLUE. What's going on, Big Blue Banter listeners? Do you like to place bets and find ways to optimize your betting experience? Well, then OddsTrader.com is the place for you. OddsTrader is a place to compare odds from all the major sports books. You can also compare the different sign-up codes and promotions from sports books to get the best deal. OddsTrader offers handicapping, play-by-play updates, player statistics, key game statistics, live scoring and tracking, projected game day, weather, and Bet Tracker allows you to keep records of all your games and betting activity. So if you like to place bets and you want to get the most out of that experience, go to oddstrader.com and use the promo code BLUEWIRE. That's oddstrader.com slash BLUEWIRE. OddsTrader, the number one site for all your game day bets. Yeah, this is an issue. Like like you said, I'm not going to reiterate everything Dan just said, but I think Dan nailed it. I think this next question is interesting. Dan from DK, he asks, given what has transpired with Kadarius Tony since the draft, how much credence do you give to the trade rumors that were circulating at that time? If Kadarius Tony's year continues as it has, mostly injured, few highlight plays, the inevitable head scratching situation, what would you trade him for? So that's a great question. I still don't give any credence to the trade rumors at the time, personally, because they only came from one source, and that source was Pat Leonard who's had some, uh, you know, mishaps with his with his sources over the years. I don't think it's him. Again, I've made this clear. I don't think it's Pat. Some people think Pat Leonard just, like, tries to stir up BS to, like, get clicks. I don't really think that's the case, but I don't know. It could be. I think he just has bad sources. It's just my, <laughs> in my opinion on it. I think he just has bad sources. Like, that happens. It's hard to get sources these days as a beat reporter. The days of, like, 2000, early 2000s when Mike Garofalo had, like, a beat on every single player and was getting six sources. It doesn't happen anymore. These players are like millennials and Gen Xers and they, and they're on their phones and they don't want to give away information. They have people in their corner, managers who are like, don't tell them anything. Don't reveal anything and be private about it. It can be used against you. So I don't really think that the trade rumors had any legitimacy to it. I think that now that might be different, right? I think now Joe Shane might be like, what do I have in this asset? Right. He's off the field all the time. He's injured all the time. He didn't pick up the playbook as fast as we wanted him to. What do I have in this asset? But that's not a question I can really answer. I feel like that's something I don't have any insight on. It's really Joe Shane's opinion. Now, what would I trade him for? That's the interesting part of the question. That's the interesting part. Right. And it's like, I guess it's, and under the circumstances, DK aligns outlines, which are great, which is mostly injured for the rest of the year. He only has a few highlight plays and then whatever the head scratching situation means. I think I would take. If that's the case again, this is so tough, man. It's tough for me, Nick, because and, – and DK, I'll tell you why. I don't know this dude at all. I don't know his personality. I don't know his training habits. I don't know if he's working his butt off, but he's just not – he just – I don't want to say it like this, but, like, he just <laughs> – this is so – I don't <laughs> – this is going to come out wrong, but he's not, like, football IQ-wise high enough to pick up the offense fast, but he's trying. So if that's the case, like he's trying and it will come to him, 
right? He's trying his hardest to pick it up. It will come to him. Then I'd rather wait because that just means it takes time. And the injuries to me are just like impossible for me to like judge him on because they could just be real injuries that he keeps suffering. That's not. And now that's the other question. Like (laughs) if he does keep suffering these injuries and these injuries have happened to him since college a lot and it's just like a long lengthy injury history maybe you should just trade him now because this asset will never be nothing and so i i guess if that's the case maybe a third round pick um but i don't know man i don't see that much value in that either no neither do i but this is a previous regime's guy yeah and he's not seeing the football field and if the what we purport which we're not even 100 percent sure about but just what we can collect from him being on the football field and running just drag routes and play action slides underneath in these very simple routes. And then the game that he does end up running routes on, you have Sterling Shepard after the game saying receivers are running wrong routes. And then you have Brian Dable substantiating that. You kind of look at one guy. the OPI too, where he was yeah. involved on. Yeah, with the with David Sills. Yeah. You look at one guy and you're like, is that Kadarius Tony? Now, I think it's easy to surmise that, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's 100% true. But at the end of the day, he's not getting on the football field. So do the Giants just want to kind of chalk it up as a loss and trade him? I, I think it's an interesting thing. I agree, though, with you, though, Dan. It, it's hard to let go of somebody like that because if he can get healthy, I feel like this coaching staff, even if he's not fully up to speed with the I playbook, know. I still feel like this coaching staff can utilize him. I he think any coach perfect fit for that, but he's even the perfect fit for what they're doing right now. Not even like this coaching staff, what they're actually trying to do. Right. Like think of how they could use him on some of these PA rollouts. Right. And things of that nature. So. Yeah, it's tough for me, especially when you consider the Giants don't have much receiving talent to begin with on this roster and no real clear path to getting it for next season right away. Like they could try to use some of their premium draft picks. They only have a couple. Do they really want to use it there when they have other needs? They don't really want to go the free agent route again. One, there's horrific free agents throughout the NFL at receiver position going into this offseason. And that's going to be the case from this point on. I mean, look, we don't want to be the team that makes the Christian Kirk contract happen even though that's looking decent but like we'll see and i was gonna say at least he's good yeah, like kenny yeah. galladay sucks right. yeah. kenny galladay also like the kenny galladay yeah. situation sucks because they're gonna have to cut him and that's still like mostly a dead cap hit that contract they're gonna save like 6.8 million against the cap while dumping while paying 13 million in dead cap next year like they this is amazing that every year of the dave gettleman regime we've had dead cap and it'll be the year after they well this year they obviously the year after the first year after they have a lot ton of dead cap an insane amount of dead cap it's the reason they can't do anything this year and then they'll even have it two years after they'll have more dead cap it's just like crazy they can't get out of their own way and it's not them obviously they they can't clean it up in one year though because it was so bad from a cap standpoint financially speaking so look i don't know if they have money to invest at receiver at free agency so to me it's an asset i would want to keep based on that depth chart at receiver gregory Cayola asked how would you prioritize the extensions and contracts for some of the core pieces playing at a high level right now that means dexter lawrence um andrew thomas xavier mckinney and julian love is there enough room to realistically sign all of them long term i think there i think there is enough room but i think it all comes down to what are the giants doing at the quarterback position like the giants wanted to sign daniel jones to a huge contract which i don't envision then obviously they're not going to have the money what are they doing with saquon barkley those questions really need to be answered if we're going to look at the long-term contracts of these four players but in terms of prioritization andrew thomas is the most important then i would say xavier mckinney then dexter lawrence and then julian love yeah i would say prioritization wise Thomas McKinney, Dexter Love, Nick nailed that. As far as can you sign them all? Yes. Just take a look at the Eagles roster right now. Go take a look at how many big contracts they have under roster. This is what you want. You want to re-sign the players you draft after their first contract. That's the 
the goal ticket to winning in the NFL. Sign as find as many players that you can resign to a second contract that you drafted and then resign them. It gives you a lot of value for a ton of reasons. One, you know more about them than anyone you sign in free agency. You have more information on who they are as people, their work ethic, their work habits, how they are in the locker room. These are things you might not know. You can hear some stories about, oh, uh, Matt Patricia told me this about Kenny Galladay or whatever told me this. But you don't really know about anything until you get them under roster. And there's also always a reason why they hit free agency. If another team doesn't sign them to a new big deal after their first contract, there's a reason for that. So this is what you want. I'd be fine resigning all of those players, but prior prioritizing them, it goes in the order Nick said. And I think it's important to note, and I know the players voted this, although all four of these guys were not drafted by this regime, they're all team captains. Yeah. So that means something to the locker room, and I'm sure yeah, that's that. not going to be lost on this regime. Great point. Rob Leonard asks, with the rise in Daniel Jones' stock, could you guys see the front office allowing him to walk to join one of the many quarterback needy teams and reduce the competition to draft their chosen quarterback? This is an interesting question. This is like a this is the third. This is like a galaxy brain type of question from Rob Leonard. I, don't take this the wrong way, people, please. But I'm not sold that Daniel Jones' stock has risen among the rest of the NFL. Right? Let's be honest about it. He has three touchdowns. He's not really passing the ball vertically much. I know there's reasons why. Partially the scheme, partially offensive line, partially receivers. But I don't think anyone's looking at Daniel Jones right now like we need to rush to sign this guy in free agency. Let's just be honest about the situation. It's how it is, which is partially hopefully going to work in the Giants' favor. Now, that could change if he starts to continue to do what he did last week against the Packers, which, again, I do believe was the best game of his career, including the Tampa game, as I look back on it. Now, it's tough to say. Very close between those two for me. But certainly up there. If he has more of those, like a lot more of those, then yeah, the, the stock could change. But at that point, I don't think the Giants are going to let him go. That's the difference. Like if he starts to put together that consistency at that high level of play, then they're going to keep him. So I don't see a, I don't envision a scenario where like he drums his stock up and then somebody like pays a lot of money and they don't need a quarterback and then the Giants get a quarterback. There's a market, Dan, right? And this is why I think Daniel Jones has a realistic ability to come back to the Giants. There's a market. And if the Giants have a higher draft pick or like a lower draft pick in the 20s or whatnot, and they don't have access and they don't want to mortgage their future to get a guy or they don't like guys, we can realistically see Daniel Jones come back on a contract, like we said, like maybe a Mitch Trubisky contract on steroids, something they can get out of after a year. Because just like you said, all the other teams in the NFL, they might like Daniel Jones, but do they like Daniel Jones enough to allow him to start? I'm not sure, but the Giants, they like Daniel Jones and they might give him another opportunity to start another year if there is not a better option at quarterback. So you got to play the market. And I think that could work into the Giants favor. But at the end of the day, Daniel Jones is not going to earn a huge contract unless he freaking just balls out of his mind. And even then, I still think that contract is going to have outs after one year. Yeah, and you got to think about like which teams were interested in Jones in the pre-draft process. We heard rumors that uh, Gruden, Jay Gruden, the, and the Washington football team were interested in him. He's not even in the NFL anymore, right? So he's not going to presume. We heard rumors that John Elway and uh, the Broncos were interested in Daniel Jones. They just signed Russell Wilson to a massive extension, so they're not going to be in the market for a quarterback either. So at that point, I don't know who else was really interested in Jones, but if I don't Shermer gets a job as an OC, that's yeah. like one thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I, I got to be honest with you. I'm not even sold that that Shermer would dig his heels in and be like, we have to sign this guy, to be completely honest with you. This is what it is. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Okay. Kurt asks, could you compare the optimism you have now for this coaching staff and the organizational direction with the optimism you had 
for the previous regime following the Seattle win, which culminated a four-game winning streak. Any lessons we can learn from what was probably misplaced optimism? Yeah, the Giants were beating Brandon Allen and quarterbacks like that during that four-game winning streak, and it was more so based on defensive success rather than offensive creativity. Whereas now, the Giants' defense is fine. It's not a liability by any means, even though they have injuries, but the offense is wildly more creative. Like, look, when, when the Giants signed Jason Garrett, I didn't hate it because I was like, we have a rookie head coach. This guy's a veteran head coach. Maybe he can he can help him. But I said he needs to evolve his offense. And it did not seem like he evolved his offense at all, basically dating back to like 2007 when he was the offensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys. And that was the big issue with the New York Giants offense. It was just so freaking rigid. It was so predictable. And it just had absolutely no flavor to it whatsoever. Right now, we see it from a coaching standpoint. We see the significant upgrade. While we liked Patrick Graham, I think we can acknowledge Wink Martindale offers something so much more. And the upside of that is so much higher than what Patrick Graham offered, in my opinion. Really, Kurt, it just comes down to this, this huge coaching upgrade that we see on film. And I think that's what allows us to be optimistic about the current situation of this team. Yeah, I think the biggest difference for me would be take a look at who they beat. That's what it comes down to, right? This year, the optimism is because they beat two former number one seeds and whatever the Titans might not be as good as they were last year. The Packers ultimately will be. And they all, and it's not like the giants luck box into that win with some random turnovers and things that fell in their favor. They won that game fair and square straight up on the road. And it was basically a road game. It wasn't Lambeau style road. That's tough to win at, but there was more Packer fans for sure there. And they were loud. Um, and you could see it in just Daniel Jones trying to get to the line of scrimmage and call the plays. So, the difference to me is just who they beat, the level of competition in those wins. Um, it's not like this year they're they're insanely more explosive on the offensive side of the ball, though they are more explosive on the offensive side of the ball, mostly still via the run game, but still, they are more explosive team even during during this game, uh, you know, five-game stretch, and they were during that four-game winning streak. So look for those things, explosive plays on offense and beating a higher level of competition. That that, that those are the lessons I guess I would I would say we've learned. Mo with two exclamation points, says, at the quarter pole plus of the season, what is one move you would like to see the Giants make to improve the roster or trade someone to acquire assets, which is kind of the big talk around Twitter right now regarding the Carolina Panthers? Yeah, I, and he says he would make an offer to the Washington football team for McLaurin. I'll shoot that one down. One, Washington's not going to trade within the division. Two, I don't want McLaurin after resigning that contract. Like, I don't even know what that would look like, and I don't want that at all. They don't even have the cap space for that, quite frankly. So that, that one's completely out. You can't – the only thing they can do – so I talked about this a little bit on Twitter this morning. I was looking at it today. Dave Gettleman left this team in such a disastrous situation from a salary cap standpoint that there really is no functional space for Joe Shane to work with. Now, you could argue, well, maybe if he didn't sign Mark Lewinsky, he'd have a little bit of room to work with. But if he didn't sign Mark Lewinsky, who the hell would be playing right guard right now? And they'd be and that would be a disaster. That would be way worse. So he had to do that. And now there's nothing left. There, and it's not only that there's nothing left, Nick, the problem and, and Mo, the problem is. They've already made all the restructures they can basically make. They restructured Leonard Williams. They pushed a lot of that cap back to future years. Now he's the fourth highest paid non-quarterback next season because of that. They pushed back some of the Dory hit. They can't really afford to push back more. They could do it technically, but it would be a very risky move. They can't sign Andrew Thomas till after year three, which I learned today. I don't, didn't even know that for sure. For some reason, I was, I was not aware of that. Um, and 
like one thing you can get creative and restruct and resign Nick Gates to a long-term deal to lower his cap hit for now, but that's even more risky than anything else. So they don't even have any contracts they can move around. They have no cap space. All they can do from a trade standpoint is trade for a guy like Terrence Marshall, who was drafted outside the first round and has like a 1.9 million cap hit. They can probably move money around to get a Terrence Marshall like on this team who hasn't done anything since he was drafted by the Panthers. Me and Nick actually really like this tape a lot, but who knows what's going on? He could be a guy that doesn't work hard. He could be a guy that doesn't pick up the tape, or he could just be a guy stuck with Ben McAdoo and Baker Mayfield in a horrific situation, which in which case you might want to take a chance on him. But all of these things for me, I wouldn't want to give anything more than like a late day three pick, a conditional late day three pick, because we still want to have these picks. And so does Joe Shane to get in the right guys that he wants that he knows from talking to them, fit the system. He knows uh, you know, from, from evaluating them that they not only fit the system schematically, but also off the field and, you know, with the IQ that they're looking for from these players. So to me, like maybe a conditional six, maybe a conditional fifth. I don't know. But I will say this, Nick, if one of those big guys comes free and I'm talking Jeremy Chin, Brian Burns, who I've heard like mentioned, but they can't really do Burns because they have Ojolari and Thibodeau. But let's say a Jeremy Chin, who I'd freaking love to put in the, on the second level of this defense right now. That's when I start to be like, all right, maybe I will throw in like you just want a third. Okay, you'll take. A, I'll, I'll throw a third for any of those like high upside type guys that that um because thirds can can be busts at times. So it, it's different. It depends on the level of talent, I guess. For me, Nick, I feel that Darren Cook asks Darius Slayton had a good rookie season, then dropped off. But now that the receiving core is in such a poor state and he is getting more reps, is it possible that he can be coached to continue being a credible starter? A hundred percent, Darren. I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think the whole Darius Slayton sucks thing from Giants Twitter, not even Giants Twitter, from those who believe that is very overstated and based on mostly one thing that he has a lot, an issue with drops. But we have to really consider drops, right? Everybody puts so much value on drop passes. But let's say you go out there, you create absolutely no separation for 10 straight snaps. You don't catch a football because you don't create separation, but you don't drop a football. Or you go out there, you create separation on seven of those 10 snaps. It's just an example. You drop one ball, but you also make four plays in the passing game. I would 100% rather take the guy who makes four plays, or let's say you only make two plays in the passing game. Hell, one play in the passing game. I'll take the guy who drops a ball and makes a play in the passing game over the guy who can't create separation but doesn't drop a pass any day. And so we're overrating, in my opinion, the value of drops versus the value of creating separation and making actual plays in the passing game that move the ball or get you into scoring position or even score, which some Darius Slayton has done a lot with opportunities as recent as last year, like the Washington game from week two and just, you know, examples like that. Uh, so and then you bring up the Washington game from week two and then you remember it, it, it the ball wasn't the best placement, but hit him in the hands in that game. Yeah, he dropped it, the ball yeah. touchdown, um, but he did make that play on the vert route on the, on the left side yeah. of the field, too, which was a nice play. So I don't know, man. I agree with you, Darren. I think that it's not even just that he's in a poor state. I think that he can be coached to be a credible starter. I think he already is a credible starter, personally. I think to, if, if you had to go out there right now, if I could have one Giants receiver for this game, this next game against the Ravens, I'm taking that, and we're assuming Tony and Wandell Robinson are just still injured, not including them. I'll take him over any of those receivers, including Richie James. Absolutely. I don't even think it's really a question mark, but I, I still maintain a level of like, I think Darius Slayton's frustrating. I find him to be frustrating because I he think is, he has yeah. all the potential that you that drops you are frustrating get. for sure. Like, yeah, and it's just he's been inefficient, and not even just from a drop standpoint. I, I don't have the separation 
metrics in front of me, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't creating separation the last two years. And I also think one reason scheme, for that yeah. is the scheme, but it's not like he was just running curl routes all the True. time. Like there were, there were times where he was running first, but regardless of that fact, this is a new coaching staff, a much more creative coaching staff. Name me a receiver on this roster who has a higher ceiling than Darius Slayton. That isn't injured right now. Yeah. That isn't injured. Nobody. There there, there's no one who has that. So he should be out there playing. If he has a full grasp of the playbook, in my opinion. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay, Rob Allen asks, assuming the Giants finish in the 9-8 and eight range or so and wind up picking late teens, early 20s, would you be in favor of them trading multiple years of number ones to move up and get their guy at quarterback? If not, what other avenues do you have to get their guy? I would be in favor of that. If it's your guy, you got to take the shot. You got to take the risk and go up there and get whoever you believe that to be. In terms of other avenues, look, we've seen the the model that teams are trying to adopt the Tom Brady model and then the Matt Stafford model and it worked for the Buccaneers and Rams which is incredible to think about but it's a conversation for another day but then we saw Denver try to do the same thing with Russell Wilson and it's it's a it's an absolute unmitigated disaster right now I'm not sure if if in the Giants they're rumored to be to have been poking around the Russell Wilson market at the time I don't know the the full extent as to how serious that those conversations were but regardless of the fact I think I want them to draft a rookie quarterback and then build around said rookie quarterback who's going to be on a cheap rookie deal and then try to win that way, the same way that Kansas City did it with Mike Kafka there and the same way that they did they did it with Josh Allen up in Buffalo under Brian Dable as the offensive coordinator. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Rob. Thanks for asking it. I think it's one of the more important questions in general it's from a roster-building standpoint. The ideal scenario is you draft them on their rookie contracts, like Nick said. Like, Despite the fact that Tom Brady and, and Matt Stafford have done this, it doesn't mean that's the right route. It doesn't mean that's the best process. The best process is still getting them through the draft. Now, how do you do that? That's a great question. I don't necessarily think... Now, again, I will say I agree with Nick that if they have a strong conviction on a guy and if this guy has... To me, it has to not just be they have a strong conviction. To me, it has to be a guy that has... Next level arm talent and next level. Just let's take out. Let's start with arm talent because it's the most important, but just next level traits. That's the key to me. You have to have next level traits for you to make this decision and read into that how you will. But that's how I'm saying it. Now, as far as how do you do it? There's been other routes lately, man. Like Patrick Mahomes is not a top three pick. Deshaun Watson was not a top three pick. Josh Allen was not a top three, top five, top six pick. None of them were. They so are right now, though, like we said, like the NFL caught up to that. That's a NFL market probably correction. caught up to that. Yes, I agree with you on that. The NFL most likely caught up to that. But there still could be guys that like I think they mostly caught up to. But let's say for an example, like an Anthony Richardson. Right. OK. And I'm not advocating for Anthony Richardson personally, because I think he's further behind than Mahomes. And obviously Watson, Watson was no not behind, but Mahomes and even like a Josh Allen was at that point coming into the NFL. And I think he's going to stay another season. But that type of player could actually, in my opinion, fall deeper into the first round, even though he has those ridiculous traits, just because he has so few examples on film of, you know, him playing the quarterback position. And that one, I think, would take time to even develop. Like, you know, Josh Allen at his first two years in the NFL, they weren't good at all, really. And then he became this unbelievable player that he is now. For me, that could be like three, four years for Richardson. And do you have the time to wait? So it's an interesting question. Um, I look at this, though, Nick, at least early on, man. I don't want to get into another situation where the Giants do another Daniel Jones, just Justin Herbert situation where they take the quarterback the year before 
over the guy they really love because they convinced themselves no matter what, we need a quarterback. Dave Gettleman said, I want to retire, saying I found this franchise a quarterback. And I'm not ruling out Daniel Jones being that guy, by the way. I just want to make that clear. But I love the 2024 class early on, Nick, and I don't love the 2023 class besides Stroud and Bryce Young, two players they won't really have an opportunity to get, in my opinion. And I don't even know if I love those guys as much as I love some of the talent in the 2024 class as far as May goes, as far as Caleb Williams goes, and as far as uh, the kid from Texas who I watched. And this is all just traits-based for me. I want to make that clear. I've not watched film on these guys. I'm just going off of just watching them a little bit and seeing the traits they have and trying to project the traits going forward. And I'm a big traits guy at the quarterback position. It's for better or worse at times. It was better when it came to Patrick Mahomes. It was worse when it came to Zach Wilson. So there will be wins and losses when you base on traits projection. Um, but I don't want to do that again. <laughs> so uh, it's a it's a complicated issue. But I'll say this. If Daniel Jones continues to play like he did in week five, I'm okay going with Jones on a reasonable deal and then uh, looking to the 2024 class if Jones doesn't take that next step. So this is kind of a redundant question, but I like this guy's handle. So I'm going to read it. <laughs> I'm on T. Witta for Giants News. Curious your nice. thoughts on if Nick Gates will return. And if so, do you project him at center or guard? Also, Shane Lemieux coming back. Is that better than the current options? It's a little bit different of a question. Oh, yeah. Well, he had played a little guard. That's where he got hurt. It's an interesting question. Like, can he compete for left guard and then they keep Feliciano at center? Um. Yeah, I think it's possible. Uh, I don't, if Lemieux is back, the other question is Lemieux is back, is he better than our current options? That one, you know, could be the case too. That He definitely has the opportunity to be better than Bredesen. Bredesen had a really bad week five. And that's not to judge him just on week five because he had a pretty good week four. But he can definitely be better, yes. And I think I'd be open to Gates getting some reps at guard too. Yeah, I'm open to it. I'm open to just having the most healthy bodies when these guys yeah. do get healthy and having them compete. And if it's a different lineup every week, it's not ideal. But if it's the best for the matchup you're going up against, then I support that type of decision. Yep, well said. Green Machine 99 asks, sorry for asking so many questions. I love your and Nick's work and insight. Well, thank you, Green Machine 99. What's the one thing that has pleasantly surprised you about this season? Player, scheme, success, other than the winning, of course. Yeah, the winning has certainly been the best pleasant surprise. I'm trying to, this is a great question. I, we never look at these questions before, and we just try to free ball them. Um, so here we go, free ball on this question. One thing that surprised me the most, hmm, I'll say, because there's some things I expected, like like Wink I expected. Kafka, I don't want to say I expected, but you can call it somewhat of a surprise, but I'm not like totally surprised by the Giants offense being a good a team that out schemes at times. Uh, let's go with biggest surprise for me, the run blocking. How about that? The run blocking. I didn't know if the run blocking would take this much of a jump that fast. And I don't have the stat in front of me, but part of why Saquon Barkley is having such an unbelievable season and he's been the best running back in the NFL, statistically speaking, is because the giant is because his yards before contact is much greater than it's ever been in his career. I think it's like a full over a full yard above his whole career yards before contact. And that's scheme too. But it's also blocking, run blocking. And you could see it when you watch the film. The run blocking is at a different level than it's been, with the exception of maybe that small stretch in 2020. But even then, I think they're doing a better job and they're more diverse in the run game. And there's more, you know, ancillary pieces making impact in the run game, the tight ends, the receivers. So, yeah, I would say the run blocking is probably my, my most pleasant surprise. For me, it would be the execution in the red zone. 
because the Giants, just for the last several years, have, have been terrible in the red zone. And, and we we figured Mike Kafka, Brian Dable coming over would have creative plays that would put the Giants in position to score. And we, we've seen it just so much with Daniel Bellinger, with Chris Myrick, Saquon Barkley, even plays that didn't work. They were still creative. But a lot of these plays end up working, and that's turning three points into seven points. And I feel like the execution from the player's standpoint, we went over it last week, that double reverse the pass Daniel Bellinger took in, like there's no way that works under Jason Garrett. It could have been the same design play, but for whatever reason, it was not going to work under the previous regime. And it worked this time. And I, I just think that to me is probably the most surprising, how efficient the, the jump in efficiency that they've had in the red zone. I think I saw today, Nick, from uh, our boy, Chris, the entertainer, that the Giants are 13th in red zone in red zone touchdown percentage this year after going 30th and 31st the two years before. So that kind of shows you the big jump they've made. But I think what's most interesting about that to me is they've done it despite only having a total of three passing touchdowns, one of which was not in the red zone. The other, which was just outside the red zone, I believe the Bellinger one. They only have one red zone touchdown. It was the free touchdown uh, week one against the Titans, which was scheme. So I think to me, that even just speaks even more volumes to what they're doing from a schematic standpoint to not really have a traditional passing touchdown in the red zone yet and still be that much better in the red zone. That shows what they're doing from a schematic standpoint to me. It's insane. It, it's it's glorious. And I love this other question by Green Machine 99. If you could go back and fix one Giants draft free agent mistake, what would it be? Great question. Um, if you only get one... <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, the honest answer, this is not going to be the answer I'm giving. So let me just make that clear. The honest answer, if we're just looking at how much this means to winning and losing in the NFL, the honest answer is they take Josh Allen in 2019. They probably don't win too many more games and they take Justin Herbert in 2020. That's the honest answer. They have Justin Herbert for the next 10 to 15 years. I'll take that over anything, including Andrew Thomas, which they would have lost in that scenario. To me, it doesn't matter. Quarterback is that much more important, and I believe Justin Herbert is that damn good. And I can't wait for people to knock Justin Herbert if he has some bad games, which he hasn't yet. Me meanwhile, they have nothing on the offensive line. They lost their left tackle. They have nothing at right tackle. They have injuries all throughout the interior. No one's going to credit that. No one's going to talk about that, but we're just going to make that clear that some quarterbacks still have good offensive lines. He does not. So... It's Justin Herbert to me. That's the but just because I think quarterback means everything. But as far as the what what's more realistic, Nick, decisions that are more realistic, um, in the last, if you go back and fix one, he doesn't give a timeline for this, right? Um, <laughs> maybe I'll say then I'll go back to 2017 and I'll take uh, T.J. Watt over Evan Ingram. How about that one? I really like that one. Yeah, TJ Watt over Evan Ingram. Let's hope that the defense at the time could have gotten this much out of TJ Watt. I feel like they would have. I'm right. going to stay this current. Certainly would have. Yeah, I'm going to stay current and just go with an easy answer in Kenny Galladay just because the Giants yeah. are still suffering right now because of this contract and they're going right. to suffer next year because of this contract. Is that the most egregious mistake in Giants history? No, it's not. It I could be up there. If he doesn't play that. again, it could be up there. That is true, man. That is true. And Green Machine 99, one more question. This is a more of a fun question, Dan. And I, I know we've answered this before on the show. What's the best TV show you have seen and why, Dan? Ah, nice. He's setting me up for this. This is a pure setup for me. And yeah. I'll go with The Wire. Look, some people, here's the thing with The Wire. One, it's a show that's much better to watch with someone who's already watched it when you're starting it up. Because The Wire is going to throw at you 15 characters within the first six episodes, more. 
15 characters that mean something that keep reoccurring within the first six episodes. And you got to try to remember who they are, how they're related, all sorts of things. But if you can get to episode, I don't want to give any spoilers and I will never spoil the wire you can get to episode eight or nine. It all starts to click. And that's when it starts to take off. Some people say they don't like season two. When you rewatch it, everyone has a different opinion on season two. The wire is the greatest show of all time because not only does it have an incredible social impact on the world and on the country. And if you watch it, you'll know that. Everyone who watches The Wire, I think, is a more empathetic person after that and a better person, just my personal take. But also, the key reason for me is every single conversation, every single dialogue in that show means something. It's the only show, in my opinion, in the history of television where every single dialogue matters. And there's no wasted dialogue in the show. I mean, some people have said that about um, The Network, I think it was, that news show. Uh, but that is all just like Fugazi dialogue. It's like everyone has the perfect line for every single situation. It's literally the worst part about the way that guy writes television. Every every single person has the perfect retort, which is not real life. This is more like real. Um, and so it's the wire for me. I'm curious to get your take on this, though, Nick. You don't you don't think the dialogue for for The Walking Dead was any good, Dan? <laughs> the great the not only the dialogue's amazing for Walking Dead. How about the plot, man? Character oh. A gets gets lost, and, and character B, C, and D have to go find them seventeen oh. times the first four seasons. It's the worst show that had so much. Carol potential. got lost the last time in Atlanta. That was the last episode I ever watched. I was like, I cannot believe they're coming back to this plot line. I just couldn't yeah, believe I, it. I rarely start a show. And like, and seasons in, and then just absolutely cold turkey abandoned yes, it because it got because I watched it for about a season and a half, The Walking Dead, and I was like, "This is terrible. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. <laughs> Why am I watching this show?" And yet I would still watch it, and then I finally just just freaking like let it go, man, because I was yeah. like, "I cannot stand this show anymore. It was so Too bad. bad." To continue. And I don't really have like I don't know like I liked Breaking Bad. I, I like obviously Sopranos. Probably go with Sopranos because I've seen that multiple. Well, for you, it'd be Thrones. I like Thrones. I like Thrones a lot. Yeah, but like, I feel like you're more into shows than I am. Like, I like shows and I respect it as an art form and everything. But when I'm not watching it, I'm kind of like just like I'm more into like comedies and like 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 South Park. Like like if I had to choose one show, it would easily be South Park. But like I feel like we're going more with like a drama hour. You can go South Park. I think that's fair. Oh, then yeah, it would easily be South Park. That's the one that's had the biggest impact on my life. Uh, I would say the one that's the biggest impact on my life is probably Seinfeld or Curb. So if we're going off a of biggest impact, I'd probably go with one of those. But for me, best show would still be The Wire. Okay. Dane Metcalf asks, here's my question, boys. Is our tight end room, which was considered abysmal before the season, actually underrated now that we are five weeks into the season? I think this group has surprising athleticism from a trades-based standpoint, and none of them appear to be complete liabilities in the blocking game. I think this is an excellent observation, Dane. And one thing I will say about the tight end room that I that I think about often, because the Giants have been using a lot of 13 personnel the last two weeks, there's only three tight ends here. What happens if one of them goes down, which we had last game with Chris Myrick, who rolled his ankle, but ended up coming back in the game. That's one thing that has me a little concerned. I honestly think they just use David Sills as a tight end, because they use David Sills sometimes in line right off the ass of the tight end as a 12 personnel package but essentially it ends up being a 13 personnel package i think that they are underrated i think they are deceptively athletic in the sense that you don't expect daniel bellinger to be outrunning people because he didn't do it in college because it was a blocking type of system but he's doing it here in the nfl and i feel like they're also being used really well by the coaching staff so i've been pleased with what they're doing and i think they're only going to get better because daniel bellinger should only improve at this point yeah i think nick nailed that one i mean they did a good job finding talent at this position they're blocking well and most importantly, I think the, the key piece to this is Daniel Bellinger. So that's the one I'm most excited about for sure. 
Shout out Frank Bellinger. Just some dude. Yeah, asked, Frank Bellinger follows us both. He's a, he's a big supporter of the Big Blue Banner <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I don't think he follows me. I don't think he follows That's me. That's Daniel's but he, dad, he, by the way. Oh, yeah, no, he doesn't he, follow me either. He just somehow like sees all my tweets despite not following me. A lot of people. I think, he though, just search, I... I think he just goes on Twitter and searches <laughs> Daniel Bellinger. That's awesome. Which is an that awesome is... move for a dad, by the way. I have so much respect for that. So wholesome. There's no way my dad would know how to search uh, somebody on <laughs> yeah. Twitter. He's pretty good take him like that Frank Bellinger. It would, it would take him like an hour just to type it. Like watching my father type, it's like the the one and the one and the my one. My dad and does the, one. the same thing. It's, it's unbelievable. It's so they don't know how to I type. Can't... They never learned how to type. It's in his, and then thinking about it too, it's like I understand it. Like they didn't like we were yeah. brought up in that environment where we taught right. it. We took computer skills class and all that. Like how vital is that to to our lives now? Like I, you didn't understand. And even it think about time. like the jobs you had early on. You were using computer for them. They were never using computers in their jobs. I could totally get why it would. It's just kind of like playing an instrument almost. Like I don't That's think about why your typing. dad loves the iPad too because it's like less typing. It's like a less oh. typing situation. Big iPad guy. Just some dude ass. I already asked this question, but here's another, or I already asked a question. Here's another look at the 2023 wide receiver free agent market. There is essentially nobody. How can the giants get a wide receiver one next season is the only true option draft. Do you think it would be possible for them to trade and what assets would you be willing to part ways with? Yeah, there are two ways to do this one. The first would be, like you said, the draft. The other would be what the Eagles did. The Eagles. I mean, I think Devontae Smith is a wide receiver one. But the Eagles found another wide receiver one in A.J. Brown by trading their first round pick. And it wasn't like a top five, top 10 pick. It's about the range where the Giants might be picking this year in the teens. So they could also trade for one of those guys. Now, I would hope that it would be an A.J. Brown or Tyreek Hill type. If one of those guys gets disgruntled or the other team doesn't have the money to pay those guys. I haven't really looked into who those potential guys could be. There may not even be the like that was a kind of unique situation with Tyreek Hill and A.J. Brown. And like Metcalf could have been one of them, but then he re-signed the big deal with Seattle. So you have to, I'd have to take a deeper look into if there are even those options, but those are the two routes for getting one. Yeah, I agree with everything that Dan said, but just some dude also asks, if the defensive success continues, how do we retain Wink? And we should ask the same question about Kafka too. So I'll start with Wink. This is kind of where it works against you to be the New York Giants because there is more media. There is more attention, especially when you're a team that's surprising and doing things like this. When you have Aaron Rodgers coming out and giving credit to the coordinator, Wink Martindale, Wink is going to be tougher to, to, to keep than I originally thought he would be. But I still don't know necessarily if he's going to get a head coach job this offseason because I still think these teams are leaning toward taking the offensive coach there, especially if Tua can get back on the field and Mike McDaniel can have more success and they can start winning games again in Miami. That's just going to build the narrative even stronger that you want to find a Mike McDaniel type. And it helps the giants that they're protected. One of my favorite shows on TV is survivor. It's the only reality show I've ever watched, but I love it because it's a really great game. I think it's a, just from the game theory standpoint, it reminds me a lot of poker. And from the game standpoint, you always want to keep what they call a shield in the game. And that means somebody who's a bigger threat than you you know, on paper, you might think I want to vote this person out early, but the reality is you don't, you want to keep them around so that, so they can always be in the game. So people could always view you as not the biggest threat. And so I feel like that's the case with D'Amico Ryan's right now, the 49ers defensive coordinator. To me, he's more of the hot flavor of the market than Wink Martindale. And as, and, and if they're going to give out two defensive coordinator jobs this off season and make them head coaches or sorry, make two head coaches defend, uh, from defensive coordinators, then yeah, we're in trouble. But I think the first one will go to D'Amico Ryan's over Wink as far as defense goes. Yeah, I 100% agree with that, Dan. And also, Wink Martin does a little older, too. He's been around True. the league a little bit. Some some coaches might want to go in that direction, or some 
owners might want to go in that direction. But at the same time, it does seem like a lot of NFL teams are transitioning to these younger guys and trying to hit big. Like Brandon Staley was a defensive guy. He had like five years of coaching at a high level under his belt at that time. And he comes from that Vic Fangio tree. And he's been terrible. Yeah, he's been honest. Yeah, he has been terrible as a as a head coach so far. Just as a head coach. The defense yeah. is all another side of the ball. Yeah. But they just can't stop the run. And I'm also wondering, and I also find it interesting just because Wink Martindale runs so much middle of the field close, which is kind of deviates from what Staley right. does and what the Fangio tree does. And the Fangio tree is like the hot flavor of the NFL right now. But regardless, if the Giants go to the playoffs and they win games and they and they totally exceed expectations, I think both of these coordinators will be on the seat to possibly earn coaching job but i i am a little bit more worried about kafka and the only way I this happens too. yep the only way this happens is if the giants go into the playoffs and then they win playoff games i think i right. think that's the way it happens because i think a lot of owners are going to look around and be like this guy used to be a quarterback in the league right. we don't know too much about him he was a quarterback coach from andy reed so he comes from the andy retreat and he just went to the playoffs and won playoff games with daniel jones and a bad offensive line and no wide receivers and i think and, yes. that's what we need yes. that's what we need to that can be like a Kevin O'Connell type of hire where it's yes. like, we don't really know much about this guy, but owners are going to throw money in his direction because he's an offensive guy who was proven to win with suboptimal assets along uh, in the offense. Yes. Nick nailed it. I'm way more worried about losing Kafka at this point. And in addition to all that, it's not even like the kind of Kevin Connell situation where he's just running like a variation of, of the McVay scheme or whatever. He's completely retooled his system from what he learned with under the Reed tree to fit this personnel. That's going to really play well with owners and with people make interviewing. When he, he brings that into an interview, he says, look, I came into this situation. I had no idea what I was going to do. I looked at our personnel and I made the, I created this entire offense system based around what I have, moving the pocket, running the ball, these, you know, these different variations of the run game. And look where we're at. And I don't feel like the national media has caught on to him yet because all I hear about is Brian Dable. Rightfully so. He's the head coach, and, and I get that. But I think Kafka has a huge influence here, and you could just see it in, in the play calling. You know he is calling the plays. This might be a system, and Brian Dable is assisting him, but Kafka is the one calling the plays, and we see the in-game adjustments. They're elite so far this season. Dan, enter name here asks, what would you give up at the trade deadline? I'm assuming the Giants continue to play well for a player like Darnell Mooney. And then John N. also asks a similar question about Denzel Mims and DJ Moore. Yeah, again, uh, I'm not really looking to give more than a conditional day three pick for these players. Just I want Joe Shane to be able to get his guys that he wants in the draft. I think that's fair. Mark Musto asks, given how weak our return game is, why are we running kickoffs <laughs> out of the end zone? I think it's just Gary it's Brightwell trying to make make a play. Whenever it's like one yard within the end zone, they're probably told like you could take it if you like the way it looks. So I think it's probably something to do with that. And it's uh hasn't been pretty yet, the special teams. No, I'd rather them just kneel it, to be honest. I'll take the 25. Ethel asks, or Ethioi. Never know how to pronounce this dude's name. How big of a role do you think culture plays in this team's success? Has this opinion changed from the previous regime? I've always believed that culture is huge, but I think culture is like a, a plant and winning is the water, right? So winning is going to make that plant a lot stronger. So I think winning is going to make the culture a lot stronger. And that's kind of how I always looked at the whole culture thing. I think coaching helps the culture as well. Like get to team success, get them to winning. But I think winning is the main ingredient that is going to make that plant strong. Yeah, I'll take Nick's plant exam, uh, plant analogy and build on it. I think culture, if culture is the plant, water is what keeps it from dying, and that's winning. So a culture can die really easily to me if you don't win. 
And so that's why I always believe that the culture is a, is a bit overrated and winning is the most important thing. I also personally do not believe that late season wins in a lost season do anything to build culture. And I, I stand by that as we learn from 2020 going into 2021. Um, but there's other examples of that throughout the NFL. I think it depends just by team. I really do. Cause I think teams like, I think young quarterbacks can win and get confidence going into the next season. And then that can carry over. It depends on your leadership. It depends on so much, but in terms of the 2020 giants, yeah, hundred percent. You were, you were right there. And that's fair. There Elizabeth, are definitely examples of, of the other side. Elizabeth Contreras asks, what happens during a player workout? Do they run drills, test uh, their comprehension of plays? Curious if they test them physically and mentally. I'm not sure. I've, I've never been a part of, of one personally. I'm imagining they run them through drills and they test them both physically and mentally, definitely physically. And I'm imagining they, they ask him like recall and stuff like that with the playbook. They probably do that, but it's also position specific, but you also just want to make sure from an injury standpoint that they're healthy and you're not bringing in a damaged asset. Yeah. I, unfortunately, Elizabeth, I don't have much information on this outside of what Nick just said. I do think the injury is the key that goes into these workers. They want to make sure how they are health wise. Okay. Jasper asks, what's the role of traditional beat reporters? This is his opinion, not ours. They don't provide analysis of games like you guys do. Thank you. But again, this is his opinion. They rarely get the inside info or inside sources. He said, uh, Duggan broke the story or, or I broke the story on KG. Said, That's not a confirmed story. That's what I've heard from, from uh, a friend who's sister works on the worked on the surgery he just said uh they just repeat what comes from the press conferences and give us their takes off of that <laughs> jasper man why, why are you chastising the beat reporters i think the beat reporters do a really good job asking questions Great. and trying to poke and pry like, i i actually think the giants beat they, they get a bad rap from fans on twitter and stuff like yeah. that but i actually respect a lot of their work and i'm not just saying that politicking over here like i i do respect yeah, a lot of their work and a lot of their insights these guys aren't going to get us jobs so i'm not saying that politicking either I don't care about the either. I think the Giants beat does a great job. I know that, look, there are people who think that they don't. I get it. And I'm not trying. And I, I think the world has changed for beat reporters. They're not getting as many inside scoops as they used to, like I said, during the Garofolo days. But that's not their fault. That's how the world works now. These players aren't giving out information like they used to. But there are still beat reporters doing great things out there. To name a few, Dan Duggan, for example, does an excellent job getting you know, breaking down, like, for example, he had a great interview this week with Eli Manning and Eli Manning discussed Daniel Jones. That's something that me and Nick are not going to be able to get. We have no relationship with Eli Manning. Dan Duggan does. So they still have the relationships with former and current players that could lead to some potential situation, you know, potential content like that Eli Manning interview where he discusses Daniel Jones. And there's good stuff for that. I think that all the beat writers really do a good job of that, with the exception of maybe one or two uh, that we don't need to bring up on this podcast. So Look, I still think they have a great role. And not only that, look, they're at practice every day. So they're still giving you like good insight on the back end of the roster and why play and what they see at practice, which people like me and Nick don't have access to. So they they still have some definite like things that not other people, you know, that we won't give. So I, I think they do a great job. I still get a lot out of the beat reporters personally, and I think Nick does as well. I do. I do. And then we have Giuseppe just adding this comment, just here petitioning for hashtag Schneierisms to be a thing when Dan creates his own phrase variations on the hashtag Big Blue Banter podcast. <laughs> I do create a lot of phrase variations. I like the Schneierism thing. I'm, I'm, this one could stick, Giuseppe. I like it. I really do like it, too. Maybe we'll start incorporating it into the podcast. Yeah. TJ Gagliotti asks, who is the person you guys want to have dinner with the most dead or alive? So let's go with like famous people. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's Larry David, for sure. Larry David would be so much fun at dinner. 
But he wouldn't. He I... wouldn't. He wouldn't. Because have you ever seen the episode yeah. where, and this he's like he's talked about this is like a true. This is based on a true story. There's an episode where someone like bid a ton of money in an auction to have lunch with him, and then like he just didn't want to be there and just made it so it's like that will never happen again. And this he, he said it was based on a true story where he, someone paid a lot to golf with him, and he's like, I don't know, I just got there and I golf. So it wouldn't. It wouldn't because uh, he probably wouldn't give much. But I still think he, he wouldn't. Be, he wouldn't give much at all. But I think in there's some sort of brilliance in that. So like in order for this to, for you to live up for it to live up for you, I think we would have to go under the impression that Larry David would be Larry David and wouldn't yeah. be as reserved. You know what I mean? He'd Honestly, be like Larry if David he was, I still think I would enjoy it so much as him being him, just being at a table with him acting like him. Yeah. I honestly, again, I don't know exactly who I would go with in this, in this situation. I, Cause there's so many people throughout history that I would want to want to ask questions to, to pick their brain on things. So yeah. I, I guess I have to say somebody, right? And I, I'm going to just go with, I guess, Eli Manning because it's Giants related. <laughs> and he's going on all these interviews yeah. with the beat reporters. Yeah, we they're talking about like Abraham Lincoln or like Alexander the Great. <laughs> I'd love to know what happened with that library that burned, like all the information we lost throughout humanity yeah. when that library burned down. No, no, no. I want Larry David and, and Nick wants Eli Manning. <laughs> Now, I would love to do Abraham Lincoln. I would love to do, you know, George Wash. I would love to go back and, and really, really see what exactly was going on there. But I'm just going <laughs> to stick with the Giants oriented guy and then pitch to have him on the Big Blue Banter podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. True. All right. The last question for tonight's uh, mailbag will be from Fundy, the Daniel Jones fundamentalist. How many times will Nick reference something then refer to it as said? Said Fundy Daniel Jones fundamentalist. Just I don't even know. I, I didn't right. get this one. What is it? Can you do you know what he's talking about? Can you give? Yeah, me yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. Sometimes when I mention something earlier in a paragraph that I'm speaking in, I'll like refer back to it and say said. I'll be like, like what? you know, the the defensive move by Kayvon Thibodeau was excellent, and he learned said move from oh, okay. blah, 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 or he, he yeah. threw said move double, you know, okay, in, in okay. this context back at Oregon. I don't even notice you doing that. It's pretty funny. I've never really noticed that. I'm glad I got brought up. Thank you. Fundy Dan <laughs> Daniel Jones, fundamentalist. Good stuff. Everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into the big blue banter podcast. Thank you for your questions this week on the mailbag. As usual, please head over to the YouTube page and check out our YouTube content where we break down the game film on the giants. We walk you through the all 22. You get to watch it along with us. If you don't have access to the all 22, Here's an easy way for you to watch Giants All-22 while hearing our analysis on it. I can't think of anything better. Well, I can think of a lot of things better, but I can't think of anything I'd rather promote being better as far as this podcast goes. Also, please rate, review, make sure you subscribe, auto-download, all that good stuff. Have a great rest of your week. We'll talk to you soon. Go Giants. Somehow find a way to get to 5-1, baby. 